Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, for the first Behold of 2022, mm. uh, we're going to do a deep dive into a particular director, yeah. um, a Spanish auteur by the name of Pedro Almodova, uh, who is quite well known, I suppose, in Spanish cinema circles mm. and film buff art house circles, but may not be too um, on the lips of the mainstream in the way that a Steven Spielberg or Christopher Nolan might be. So I thought I'll take this episode to delve into four of my favorite films from his filmography. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally love all of them. Uh, so I, they, I had a tough time kind of narrowing down my favorite four, <laughs> but I did it. Um, I believe Isa has never seen a Pedro Almodovar film yeah. up until I asked him to prep for this episode. Yeah. So, um, without delving into you know the, the movies just yet, uh, give me some, some of your thoughts on Pedro Almodovar, his style, his themes, and things like oh, that. Oh, man. Um, it's... I, I, f- I feel sometimes very conflicted watching his stuff, right? Like the four films that we're kind of like talking about today, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of melodrama. Um, mm. There's a lot of these moments of like incredibly short kind of like sequences and films that, that stand out, right, visually for you and kind of like uh, add an accent point to whatever just happened before, um, yes. you know. But there is a an interesting kind of, I don't know if restraint necessarily is the right word. Maybe more restraint in some of the films than in other films, right? Mm. Uh, I, I do I do enjoy his particular um, focus and lens on on uh, women uh, yep. and, and womanhood. I, I think that's like a very very strong thing that we we see in these four in particular, um, mm-hmm. and like just some outstanding performances. Uh, in general yeah. from that. There is a lot of... I, I love the bright colours and kind of like the deep saturation of it. Um, yeah. You know, it's constantly there. It feels very graphic, like in a comic book sort of way. Um, mm. You know, and like just the... the Like a lot of the time, they, they talk about, you know, his films as kind of like a dramedy or like a comedy drama kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if comedy necessarily is a part of that like the, the comedy is too too intertwined with the drama that's going on for it to stand out like it's not necessarily like laughed out loud but there's a lot of absurdity that you notice while it's there you know sometimes yes. to the point of of farce or yeah. even parody but it feels still very real and very grounded at the same time like the characters themselves take it very seriously right and they are mm-hmm. especially for some films more than others of the four that we're talking about like it feels like he takes it extremely seriously despite the fact that like his framing and his devices and even the way that the script is written it is supposed to have some form of hilarity uh, yep. but because it is this kind of like melting pot of so many emotions both from the mm-hmm. characters and stuff and what you know the scene elicits within the audience it's very hard to separate them into like oh this scene was like really funny and i laughed a lot about that like it's it's a lot of conflicting and complex layering of emotions as an audience member watching his stuff yeah. uh yeah so it uh, given that this is kind of my first introduction to him i think like prior to that i've maybe watched a couple of snippets from uh, women uh, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, 
like I mm-hmm. had to do do some yeah there were some snippets I would need to write write about but other than that I've, I've not really dived into this book so very honestly the last couple of weeks have been very eye opening he's a mm. very it's he's he's a very singular creator I think like you immediately can identify one of his movies uh, his style yeah, his yeah, style yeah. is so unique in the very specificity of the way it looks and feels. You know, and on top of that, like all the soundtracks are just amazing. I was really, really mm. taken by them. I I feel like there are very few creators that you can identify instantly. Yeah. Uh, by by their work, you know, sometimes for good and for bad, like, You know, like um, Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> for example, is very identifiable. Oh yeah, right? for sure. You know, um, uh, whereas Steven Spiel- well, yeah, <laughs> whereas Steven Spielberg is not. He's more of a chameleon, and it depends on what the movie is. Yeah. Uh, but Pedro Almodovar is always Pedro Almodovar. And I think the first thing that pops out to any person who is watching it, whether you be a long-time fan or a newbie, is the color that he uses. Mm. He loves strong primary blocks of color yeah. and um, extravagant costume design. Uh, there is this kind of madcap mood to the comedy and the drama. Um, it is forever um, mm. always soap operatic. Oh, yeah. Um, always on the verge of being like overblown, overwrought domestic melodrama with you know the screaming colors alongside screaming actors. But um, the thing is, like, why doesn't it fall into a soap opera abyss? <laughs> I think that's because like of his love for style and brightness and his sense of framing and composition yeah. within the screen is second to none and nothing like the telenovelas that we watch on TV. There is a control and strength to his imagery, um, also aided by some very extremely talented cinematographers that he surrounds himself Mm -hmm. with. I think few directors are as capable as he is of drawing your eye to a detail or an actor's gesture and one can tell that he hates over the composition of his shots, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. choosing and selecting them carefully, much in the way that Wes Anderson does, but of course in a very different manner. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, again, Wes Anderson is another example of, you know, someone very identifiable. Um, and it's also a, a manipulate as a ge- or generate a specific uh, emotional reaction in the audience, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think it's really great. You know, he has a lot of like recurring themes, particularly with marginalized groups um the queer community is a obsession with him so are women and mothers uh big themes in nearly every one of his films Mm -hmm. uh and his themes are reflected in his i don't know what the term is mood board his visual mood board you know for colors (laughs) and architecture and furniture and costuming all reflect a kind of um, hedonism or liberation or wild sexuality. Yeah. So it's it's completely inseparable from his storylines. Like it's it's a salute to that carnival of color, which kind of implies a first for life. You know, his his characters are bold to look at. Um, it's it's very very great to watch. He likes to incorporate consistently um theatrical spaces mm-hmm. or mixed media usually there is a film within a film or a theater within a film yeah. or a play within a film and things like that commercials within a film um a, a hospital information uh, infomercial <laughs> within a film things like that you know he likes to incorporate mixed media into it la. uh there's a lot of screwball comedy a lot of melodrama a lot of intricate so operatic plotting mm-hmm. uh he likes to use mirrors a lot yeah. uh one thing that i noticed a lot you know besides the exposure of color is like he likes to use couches a lot of his big Climactic scenes happen on couches. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
yeah, he's he's very very identifiable, and and that's why I I I love him so much. Like, and he he remains, I think, very underseen and very underrated outside of Spain, mm-hmm. I suppose, and outside of the art house, uh, films, uh, film community. Um, what was your favorite of oh, the four films? This is hard. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, it has to be a toss up between All About My Mother and Volvo. I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Volvo probably. Um, it just it just out just cause like Penelope Cruz is such an amazing what what an amazing performance, uh, by mm. her and just the whole cast of of women in particular there. Uh, I found it the most kind of, um, interesting in terms of like thematic exploration, uh, mm-hmm. with with what is done there. I, I I think it definitely feels like one of the simpler conceits of the four films that we're watching. Uh, yeah. you know, because like all about my mother is like really, really layered, and then like you know, talk to her has uh, I- interesting kind of reveals, kind of all mm-hmm. of it, and then pain and glory has like all the various flashbacks and the multi storylines kind of interwoving together. Um, yeah, Volver seems a bit more straightforward, and because mm-hmm. of that, I think there is more time to just soak in the general atmosphere of that and really, really get to see like you know, um, both. Um, the director and the actresses there just like show off kind of like at the peak of their powers, especially Penelope Cruz. Yeah, um, it's insane. I mean, it's it's I it's almost funny like that you mentioned Penelope Cruz, considering she's in nearly every uh, Pedro Almodovar film. Yeah, uh, and you can say the same about uh, her in nearly all of his works. Uh, she's yeah. great in all of them. Mm-hmm. Like one of his um muses or one of his favorite uh, actors to work with. Uh, my personal favorite is Pain and Glory mm-hmm. because I felt it to be the most different of his films oh, in terms mm-hmm. of its restraint yeah. and in terms of its very obvious autobiographical nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a film he could only have made as an old man. Yes. Uh, in him dealing with maturity and age and and everything like it, it feels like the ultimate Almodovar so far. encapsulating all his themes. Yeah. Plus with the av- added lens of maturity that he did not have in the earlier years. I agree. Um, yeah, films about aging are very rare. You know, stuff like The Irishman is something that Scorsese could not have made unless he was an old man, right? Yeah. Because you just don't understand aging until you're, you're there, la, until you're frail, until you're feeling like back pains like Antonio Banderas' character does. You know? mm-hmm. um, so yeah, let's begin with All About My Mother, which is the earliest film. Uh, not his earliest film, but the earliest film we'll be talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, also a very good film. I think one of the films that made him first break out yeah. in the cinema world. Uh, one of the best Spanish films, uh, according to many uh, Spanish um, critics. Uh, the film opens in Madrid with a medical worker named Manuela, played by Cecilia Roth, and her teenage son Esteban, uh, played by Eloy Azarin. Um, they've gone to see a performance of A Streetcar Named Desire, uh, and they're waiting across the, across the street from the stage door so that Esteban can get an autograph mm-hmm. from the famous actress uh, Huma Rojo. Um, she jumps into a taxi, uh, intercut with uh, shots from All About Eve uh, of Bette Davis, you know, eluding, uh, <laughs> uh, Betty Davis uh, eluding an autograph hound and Esteban runs after her and is struck dead in the street by a passing car. Um, that sets up the story as Manuela then journeys to Barcelona from Madrid to inform Esteban's father of the son's death. Mm-hmm. Um, there is irony as the film 
folds back upon itself because its opening scenes show Manuela, uh, who is now a transplant coordinator, but once an actress performing in a video intended to promote organ transplants yeah. or organ donation. Uh, in the film, grieving relatives are asked to allow the organs of their loved ones to be used. And later, Manuela plays the scene for real uh, as she's asked to donate her own son's heart. Um, I think the Barcelona, the Barcelona scenes reflect Almodovar's long-standing interest in, in characters who cross the gender divide, mm-hmm. and Esteban's father is now a trans uh, best prostitute. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of good stuff here in All About My Mother. Uh, what do you think about uh, the story, the film, and uh, your first introduction to Almodovar? Oh, man. Um, yeah, so it was the first thing that I, I, I kind of dived into mm-hmm. of the four. Um, I think this is the... This was the... It... I, it, it... Okay, I haven't seen the rest of the films, but this feels like, to me, was the perfect way to kind of, like, enter this world that uh, Amaldova does. Um, you know, just, like, with this incredibly fascinating uh, leading women, right, of the story um, that, uh, you know, have these, like, complex relationships with each other and with the great the world at large you know but at the same time they when they come out, come together for this uh, um for sanctuary and for safety and, and and leaning into each other emotionally for help and support and all of that amidst this incredible kind of backdrop that is like barcelona right like this vibrant yep. kind of like city that's always noisy and always kind of moving you know um mm. and and separated by these just kind of moments of silence, of dialogue between one, two, three, or four women seated in couches around the table or at a cafe. Um, that's a lot. A lot of the movie deals with that, you know, like these conversations that they kind of have, a lot of retelling of their past and retelling of their story of shared memories and things like that, um, that ultimately climax in the need for, like, each each shared memory requires a form of resolution that eventually comes about in, in the plot. Yeah. And it's extremely, it feels extremely intentional and like well-paced. Like it's planned to a T, like everything on paper had to totally make sense and then be executed in that exact same way. Um, mm. And All About My Mother just like really struck me at the intricacy of what he was trying to achieve in terms of tying all these storylines together. Uh, every review felt significant in the moment that it was revealed. Uh, yeah. You know, and um, it, but it never detracts from like the moment itself, right? Like the moment that these these characters find themselves in, you know, whether it's finding out about um, revealing, uh, you know, her, her, who her son's, uh, the father is, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Like, those revelations are significant to the story and significant to the characters, but they never take away from the moment in which those revelations are made. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of mind-blowing to strike that sort of balance, right? Like, any other way, if you lean too much into it, it would become, like, camp, you know? Uh, yep. Or, like, very soap operatic. Um, but for some reason, he consistently, especially, I think, uh, all about my mother and and in the other three films, he always writes that line so gracefully that you never feel like 
it doesn't cheapen the experience. You know what I mean? You know, in any other use of those particular devices in in popular TV, for example, or soap operas or telenovelas, right? Like you will always feel kind of like cheated out of a big moment, say for example, or an emotional climax. Um, mm. But it never feels yeah. that way with his films. In particular, yeah. I think All About My Mother. Um, yeah. And just like the interiors, right? Whoever's doing like the set design, the interiors look amazing. I think in in particular for this movie, um, where the the apartment that Manuela rents and eventually shares with Rosa, wow, what a what a place to find to rent, like when you're kind of like out of a job and stuff. It's kind of mind blowing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the visuals are so interesting. Um, I love 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 the constant kind of like. Um, going back to a streetcar named Desire, um, yeah. you know, and all the callbacks and how he intersperses that in in very poignant ways to counterpoint something that's either happening before or after that, um, mm-hmm. and, and making it as part of the story as well as a as a not a rite of passage necessarily, but like an initiation into this like particular sisterhood that they're sharing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I do feel like this is very superbly plotted and supremely confident black comedy. Yeah. Uh, like like you said about his comedy, like it's so intertwined with the drama that it feels hard to uh, laugh yeah. at it. You yeah. know, even, even at its moments of uh, absurdity. Um, it's funny and sad and emotionally generous about, you know, love and parenthood and friendship and loyalty and life and art and acting roles and specifically about acting or recreating oneself according to one's dreams yeah. and about what if anything is truly natural or performative you know um all the performances here are excellent oh, and yeah. i think the film is immaculately designed also as all his films are um so much to like about this you know um like manuela is the heroine at the film or of the film and at its center mm-hmm. you know but uh, there are so many other great supporting characters oh, yeah. as well for, for you to love. Mm-hmm. And I think El Modova in his films is in love with acting or actresses, uh, with all who are or want to be women yeah. or people who want to be mothers. And all about my mother kind of nestles Manuela's story among those of others in her transitory found community yes. that she has in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maternity seems to be rescued from the prisons of uh, Catholicism or Franco's regime with its, you know, vision of motherhood as a means of keeping women in the home and of rebuilding Spain, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and things like that. And he he recontextualizes that or, or liberates that. Mm-hmm. Um, the film does a good job of blurring divisions between, you know, Birth and adoptive, uh, birth and adoptive parenthood, yeah. cis, cis and trans, um, the desire for a mother to be aligned with other passions. Many of them are queer or trans. You know, mm-hmm. um, the all the attachments that these various characters have. You know, uh, whether they are prostitutes, whether they're actresses. You know, um, and he captures the, all this with with the delirium and the wishfulness of mental process and yeah. memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all his films do that to to a certain degree, like finding new variations on love and grief and other human passions. Mm. And his stake in maternity, in particular over the years, has proved to be ever more generous and intense and non judgmental, yeah. uh, and full of agony. Uh, and all about my mother, 
uh, begins that journey with a kind of candor and loveliness mm-hmm. that you that you will see continue to evolve uh, in later films, which is why I felt like All About My Mother will be like a great entry point into his work. Yeah, yeah. It definitely felt that way. I mean, like now looking back, having seen the four films, uh, I'm, I'm glad I started with this one because I was just kind of like, what should I do first? Should I go back? What's all that? But this was a this was kind of great entry point. I do want to um, check out the... What's the flower one that inspired this story? The flower one? Uh, the flower of my secret, mm. which which has the seeds of this uh, uh the story that we plays out in all about my mother. I, I would definitely love to watch that. Uh, yeah, we're done with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all his films are are great and and should are uh, worth checking out. Uh, but next up, let's move on to his follow up to all about all about my mother called uh talk to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um. Talk to her uses the kind of offbeat premise that we've come to expect from Amaldova, whose yep. films all but guarantee a very offbeat view of life and love and relationships. This time we have two men. One of them is a nurse, uh, Benigno, uh, and the other is a journalist, Marco, who spend a great deal of time in a private clinic where the most important people in their lives are in comas. Uh, for Benigno, it's Alicia. Uh, a dancer he barely knew before she arrived at the clinic, but for whom he has unceasingly cared for over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benigno is clearly in love with her and believes the feeling to be mutual. Um, and <laughs> well, this, I, I don't even want to spoil what happens, but I think you kind of know. Um, you you can't get an inkling that something is wrong here. Yeah. Uh, and and meanwhile, uh, Marco, the other character, the journalist, uh, his girlfriend Lydia was a bullfighter before the fateful day when she was got by a bull, trampled, and nearly killed. Now she, much like Alicia, seems to be, you know, um, lying in repose. You know, um, unlikely to ever awaken. Um, there are plenty of movies available about. Uh, women talking to one another, but films that chronicle deep, meaningful conversations between men are quite a rarity mm-hmm. in a very... Um, it, it, even despite the fact that, you know, uh, men, male characters still dominate cinema. Yeah. Uh, I think Talk to Her is one of those unusual films with Benigno and Marco developing a powerful bond as a result of their common circumstances, their loved ones in comas. They speak to their comatose women, but with increasingly greater frequency, they begin to rely on one another instead. Mm-hmm. As, as friends, there, there may be an element of um, uh, friendship here, or at least on Benigno's part, you know, he is kind of like um, a virgin and unsure of his feeling, feelings. His obsession with Alicia, uh, to a degree that even Alicia's father finds unsettling, yeah. you know, like it's it's weird for a nurse to be this into this this patient. Uh um and we find unsettling as well. Um and Benino is clearly a disturbed individu- individual, right? <laughs> yes. He spent 20 years caring for a bit ridden mother before switching his attention to Alicia, who seems like a, a surrogate or a replacement for his mother, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a person of sexual interest. Like some of the most telling scenes about him are the flashbacks which show him spying upon the dancer who is now in a coma yeah. from afar uh, before working up the courage to approach her. Uh, Marco's past is less creepy but also has you know, um, deep emotional wounds as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both actors have the poise and ability to convey uh, what their characters are feeling uh, and their portrayal, like, it, it offers like 
um, Javier Camara, for example, who plays uh, Benigno, mm. right, has has uh, is simultaneously naive and unsettling. He's the he's the kind of person that we want to be sympathetic towards, yeah. but are also wary of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Grandinetti's uh, Marco is more straightforward, a man who's been scarred but begins to rediscover himself with his relationships with Lydia and Benigno. Uh, perhaps the most difficult acting job belongs to Leonor Wetling, who is forced to spend most of the film in a coma oh, and man. often nude. Uh, and Almodovar, I think, gets all the details right here, from Alicia's dancing to Lydia's bullfighting to Benigno's nursing. I think I found the scenes depicting the care of the Komoto's patients to be revealing. Uh, since... I particularly had no idea how much effort is involved in taking care of a comatose person. Yeah. You think they just lie there, but they need their muscles work, they need to be bathed everywhere and things like that, you know. Um, as usual, he interweaves moments of humor uh, amidst moments of like extremely dark, taboo storytelling Yeah. Uh, that he somehow manages to both condemn and find empathy with the person. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it's very powerful. Uh, what do you think about Talk to Her? Oh man, uh, I definitely agree with a lot of points for you. I think on the last point in particular, right? In this yeah. again, wonderful kind of, um, wonderful kind of style that he kind of owns, right? Uh, in terms of storytelling, um, mm. what's very telling is that a lot of the moments I think when uh, Benigno um, is with Alicia, like the, the comatose Alicia, and all of that, uh, and either washing her or massaging her or where she's like partially nude with or without somebody else there, like those very same scenes, right? There is both a, a, a clinicalness to it while at the same time being central, while at the same time being creepy, while at the same time having an almost like sanctimonious or, or sacred feeling to that, mm-hmm. all in a single scene that can change from frame to frame. Um, mm. And it is intense it is an intense experience to feel all those things in succession or even at a time in a given like 20 seconds of the film right Mm. and he strings together so many of these um kind of like uh, very emotionally packed I, i guess would be the right way to put it emotionally packed vignettes uh, across the time of these two men's histories and their relationship with both their uh, loved ones slash each other, um, mm. you know, and talk to her is it's it's. Ooh. I mean, like I think perhaps the most taboo of the four we are talking about, like when it comes to like, you know, taboo storytelling Definitely. and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt so conflicted watching this. I mean, like, I fully enjoyed the entire experience as a whole, as a film. Uh, mm-hmm. But it gave me a lot to kind of, like, work through emotionally, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that felt both uncomfortable and rewarding at the same time. Like, it's it's a lot of very conflicting emotions about that. And that's something that I'm continually seeing in, in the four films. Yeah, but it is highlighted, I think, most by Talk To Her, um, mm. more so than maybe many of the other films. Um, Benigno is such a fascinating character study. Um, mm. Like you said, right? You want to root for him uh, on the one hand, but at the same time, like, you know, it's full, just full, fucking full of red flags, you know, all mm. over the place. And then you kind of question, like, 
you know, if Marco continues um, his friendship, is he implicit in a crime that may or may not have happened? Yeah. You know, and then that whole thing that kind of plays out and then the way the film kind of ends with the reconnection of Marco and Alicia, mm. like, man, uh, it is, it poses a lot of questions and it poses a lot of uncomfortable questions at the same time. Uh, yeah. But it is so intricately detailed like the attention to detail in every scene in every process it's a very process driven film in terms of mm. like the journalism process the process of like donning your attire as a matador right the the ritualistic kind of processes that we go through in day to day to prepare for our day or to prepare um for for our jobs or or any of that like all of those are painstakingly filmed and archived and displayed and laid out for us to see. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that kind of like really struck me as a very interesting way to let these processes uh, add to the characters and tell the character stories alongside these very poignant, very long, drawn, uh, bated breath kind of conversational moments. Yep, yep. The the pivotal moments or action of talk to her, I think, uh, could be horrific or, or at the very least nauseating, and it, and it is. Oh, yeah. Yet there is also at the same time such imaginative warmth that Almodovar conveys to uh, his two male leads. You know, combined with his stylization uh, and his 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 take on the real world or surreal world. You know, yeah. um, fetishization of Adisha. Yeah. Uh, one of the highlights of the film is inspired by seeing a silent film called Shrinking Lover. Mm. Um, this is a hilarious, uh, wild... <laughs> I don't even know. It's one of the wildest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost Charlie Kaufman-esque in its wildness. It's, it's, a, it's a silent film within a film. It's a black and white pastiche sequence yep. that Almodovar plunges into with relish, whereby a scientist accidentally swallows a shrinking potion and roams erotically over the landscape of his lover's body like like Gulliver yeah. uh, in Gulliver's Travels and, and finally diving ecstatically into her vagina. It is uh, an act of reverential worship, yeah. supposedly not penetration, which is how presumably poor Benit Neo thinks of his own transgression. Yes. Um, all this objectification comes to a crisis, right? Right at the end. Absolutely. when I, th- I think... It's not really much of a spoiler. Like you kind of you kind of know that Benigno like rapes his patient, mm-hmm. uh, and confesses to Marco his crazy plan to marry Alicia, a scheme to which he is convinced that he has her consent, despite the fact that the woman is in a coma. Yeah, um, uh, yeah it's 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 wild. Um, <laughs> of all the film or or media within movies that Almodovar has ever filmed, um, give me your thoughts on like that particular one the shrinking woman oh man uh the shrinking shrinking man right uh shrinking man yeah, i'm sorry yeah man. yeah i mean like it was uh okay definitely there was a shock factor to that right yeah like it starts okay. off innocent enough um yeah. you know the whole like shrinking thing and like there's of course the entire kind of like uh, the pastiche of that and all that, like that final scene of 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 the silent film, certainly. Uh, I had to look for my jaw just because I wasn't expecting that <laughs> yeah. at that yeah. point in the film. Like it felt like a sudden interjection, and until the end, like you don't really quite understand why it's there. 
you know, mm-hmm. like it, within the story, you know that this is something that Benigno has recently watched, right? Uh, and that's the explanation for us having to partake in that the strangeness of of seeing that in in the plot well, at that point. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, that scene was. I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that, right? Like, I don't know if that's something that I haven't had enough time to kind of unpack yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it works perfectly within what uh, Moldova is trying to do in that, at that moment, right? Like, mm. that is the tipping point. Because at this point in yep. time, Beninu has been caring for Alicia for four years, I think, uh, yeah. or something close to that, right? And this is the moment in time where this the absurdity of going from like this whole story of a man who shrinks down right um, and to explore his lover and and eventually you know the um, goes into her literally yeah. Uh, yeah like that the absurdity of that is counterpointed by the fact that we um we don't see that like we never see the crime committed on screen right uh, mm-hmm. and that um is is both commentary and you know negative space I guess, uh, for us to fill in the gaps from there. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have enough time to kind of sit on that to to process it completely. Yeah. it is mind it is mind blowing, right? Yeah. When you piece everything together, and it's like what was I just like kind of put through, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and and, and yeah, I, I because of that also as an audience member like com- compliant or liable because. Yeah, it's it's just insane, right? Because it's a, a mm-hmm. scene that's given to you without like explaining to you why or what or where or when, and you have to partake fully in that scene for the story to continue. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 that that whole short film or or black and white film is kind of sort of like this microcosm of of what uh, talk to her is. You know, yeah. it's it's wild and crazy, but at the same time also. Um, it has this kind of jolting meditation on love, obsession, and loneliness. I think Almodovar has made a powerfully moving film about a couple of men who think they want to lose themselves in, in their women, but one is legitimately caring and the other is more about himself yeah. and filling in the loneliness in his heart. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, Talk to Her came out in 2002. Um, you can, you know, same with all about my mother. You can rent it everywhere that that films are available to to rent yeah. on your Amazon or iTunes and things like that. Uh, let's move on to. I think you mentioned this was your favorite film, yeah. right? Volver. Next one, yeah. Uh, Volver is again a, a a very gripping melodrama. It is <laughs> uh, more than the rest soap operatic by the fact that this film is about how trash TV impacts their characters' lives yeah. and how it very much mirrors it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Penelope Cruz, once again here, uh, plays Raimunda, who is a hardworking woman with a teenage daughter, Paula, uh, and a feckless kind of layabout husband in their house. Um, with her sister, Sole, she she tends to the grace of her parents and visits her ailing aunt, Paula, mm. who is uh, heart-rendingly in the final stages of dementia. So Raimunda's family life shatters with one terrible act of violence. Uh, and there is a secret about her late mother, Irene, that surfaces when her late mother, Irene, <laughs> returns from beyond the grave <laughs> yeah. as a ghost, question mark, to make 
contact with her astonished daughters. Um, is Volvo a ghost story? Is it? Uh, is it really? Not really, no, but, but yeah. I probably wouldn't reveal it. You know, it's it's kind of a cool twist at the end. Yeah. I, I thought it was a ghost story, but it ends up not being one. And <laughs> and the, the the movie kind of drifts along this periphery of the supernatural, and uh, and Amandova like kind of walks a tight line with you know a, a master's confidence. Um, since this is your favorite movie, I'll let you like take the lead on this. What what do you love about Volvo? What what makes it oh, so special? Uh, I I think Volvo feels different from the other three uh, that we've watched, right? I, I mean, obviously, Pain and Glory is very distinctly its own thing, um, mm. given, you know, when it was made in, in his career. Um, yeah. How is that? Volver has this very kind of, like, interesting um, tribute to the neorealism of, like, for- the 40s, I guess. Um, mm. You know, and 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 um, Penelope Cruz like definitely plays kind of like the part of that, right? Uh, if anything, like has the feel uh, initially of like what a, a telenovela would be, like this this is definitely it, like kind of hands down. Yeah. Uh, with that, you know, um, again, there is a lot of like layered kind of like, emotional work that's being done by the characters uh, and the audience members at any given kind of point in time, but. I do feel like one of the reasons I enjoyed this a great deal is because the focus, um, in the initial stage at least, on on Penelope Cruz's uh, Raimunda, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it paints her into a very interesting picture of femininity and motherhood, right? Uh, there is the provision and the protection uh, of, you know, her daughter Paula, of which we, we find out things about later, Right, uh, the whole idea that you know, um, she she has to be strong, uh, and like get things done, right? Uh, which is kind of like the way that that a lot of the women here have have just to kind mm. of like pull themselves up despite the fact that like the odds are against them, you know, and the men in their life are trash and criminal and so on and so forth, right? Uh, in the end, they are the movers and shakers of their own lives. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a constant thing uh, that you see thematically throughout all the female characters here. Um, uh, despite like the ever-increasing absurdity of what is going on and the grander and grander or the grimmer and grimmer revelations that get revealed as time goes by. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just that. And like the colour, I think, involver especially... Uh, mm. is extremely like eye-catching, right? Like it's very, very hard. I think if, the one kind of striking scene that is kind of in the middle of the way when she goes like shopping to cook for yep. the first time, the color mm. of those tomatoes, right? I'm just like, mm. what in the what? How I've mm. never seen tomatoes like that, right? Um, and and it's just this constant. Um, it is a colorful story of people, you know, in like kind of these almost like exotic or far out or far fetched like coincidences in life that's juxtaposed against that visual spectacle of of the colors and the the, the prestige that's there. Um, mm. Yeah, and also that, and I just really love Penelope Cruz, and I think this is probably one of her best performances ever, mm. um, for sure. And I, yeah. I, it's so easy to see, like, why, why she... I think she's done, like, what, eight movies with him? Lots, yeah. Yep. or something along those lines. So, yeah. Uh, 
just kind of my initial thoughts, I think, without necessarily revealing too much um, yeah. of the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I really, or one of the things that is unexpected about Volvo yes. is that um, it's not really about murder or the afterlife. Uh, it, no. <laughs> um, it incorporates those inconvenient developments into the problems of daily living. Yeah. Like, his characters approach their dilemmas, yeah. whether it be, you know, someone murdered my husband, um, and how do I dispose of his body, yeah. to my dead mother is now a ghost hanging about my sister's house. Yeah. Um, but they approach it like it's normal. Like, it's just another thing they have to deal yeah. with. Like, <laughs> it's just like they approach it with such, like, pra- practicalism and you know, um, pragmatism. Yeah. Uh, it's it's almost surreal at how it's like, oh, okay, you know, how do we get through this? Um, and it's it's insane. Like it's it's it pretty much captures, I think, like um, an adult woman's mentality is like shit happens. Yeah. Now we just now we, now we just move now through we it. Yeah. It. We yes. have to handle. Now we do with it. Yeah. It's that's, it's really great. That's a yeah. more succinct way of what I was trying to get at just now. Uh, yeah. yeah, that and I love the fact that like the uh, a lot of the plot takes place around a fridging incident, right? But mm, in this yeah. case, it's it's reversed, and I love that. Uh, I don't know how intentional that was. I don't know if if Almodova is aware of what fridging is necessarily in pop mm-hmm. culture, but I fucking love that uh, it's reversed this time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know the details of the narrative. There's a lot of like death, cancer, betrayal parental abandonment and then more death and ghosts and I think you you might read the description and think that you know there's this impression of dreariness or woe nope. <laughs> but but nothing could be further from the truth of Volvo which is buoyant with great music and colors and vibrancy yeah. without willing without being flip uh, and and it it, it consoles um, heavy emotions without mm-hmm. ever becoming maudlin. Mm-hmm. I think Omodova acknowledges misfortune, which it takes seriously from a perspective that is sometimes comic. Yeah. Um, but very few filmmakers have managed to smile so convincingly in the face of misery and fatality as uh, Omodova does here in Evolver. Um, it draws you in. It's very inviting. It's very colorful. Um, the m- music and food and color is is great, as, yeah. as I mentioned. Um yeah, this is one of his most beautiful films to watch uh, and one of his most um, uh, potent in terms of what he wants to cover in terms of his themes. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's... And, 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 and of course, you know, the, again, the, the show within the show, this time it's a lot of trash TV, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's... Trash TV is the kind of thing that our Motorbus stories could be if it wasn't so well handled. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. And he, he always does that. You know, I'm always worried whenever I... I read the plot of an Armando film. It's like, this could easily be like a telenovela or soap opera, yeah. like a Days of Our Lives kind of yeah. thing. But somehow he elevates it into like the realm of high art. And I'm continually amazed that he keeps it's, doing it's, it. it. It's insane. It really, really is insane. Like, I I don't know how he does it, you know. Like, one could mm-hmm. spend one could spend a, a good chunk of a lifetime, right, just studying these films to see how one can elevate something like that or you know the methods and techniques and it feels like he has got it brought down to a science right a lot of time watching his films feels like I as an audience member am being led upon a very strategic like specific path uh, emotionally as I'm going through that like it's concocted in a particular manner for that to happen Um, 
And there are moments where mm-hmm. it feels like that, right? But as you're watching the film, you know, uh, you you just kind of get whisked away by by everything else that's taking place. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think like Volva in particular is the most, um, not dissociative. What would be the right word for that? Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. The what you what you feel like reading the plotline on paper and what you feel after watching the film, right, are the opposite extremes. Uh, I think mm. more so than any of the other three, for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I I love this movie as well, which is why I want. It. It's one of his top four films for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can watch Volvo again. Go rent it. Uh, buy it on iTunes or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's available right now. Or if you're one of those old school people, it's available on Blu-ray as well. Uh, let's move on to the last film or. Not his most recent film because uh, he has a new film coming out um, soon. Yep. Uh, but I'll talk about that right at the end. But let's talk about Pain and Glory first, mm. which is my personal favorite of the Amorova canon uh, because it is the most gentle and emotionally naked movie that Pedro Almodovar has ever made. Yeah. Um, it is an autobiographical work, although that's more of a matter of approach than of actual content. Yeah. Um, here, we follow an aging filmmaker uh, and one-time provocateur, uh, S- uh, Salvador Malo, who is Antonio Banderas, who has been outfitted and costumed with Almodovar's colorful shirts mm-hmm. and high tops, mm-hmm. and he sports a <laughs> salt, and paper, salt and pepper beard and you know, a, a sh- shock of happy hair, not unlike the directors. He looks like the director. Yeah. He's made to look like <laughs> um, The character even lives in Almodovar's real-life apartment. The, the, the production reportedly uh, shot there and when it moves uh, when it moved to studio replicated the filmmaker's own apartment yeah. um, you know with its impeccable vibrant decor and, and you know the rainbow curtains and the primary color cabinets you know and oddball works of art his apartment in real life looks like an Amodova movie and why not put it in an, in an Amodova movie event you know um, so Salvador here is clearly the fictional uh, alter ego of, of Amodova, a vessel through which the director can confess his doubts and regrets and tie up loose ends that he may not have been able to do in real life. Um, Salvador at times seems to be a man built entirely out of memories. You know, when we first see him, he's submerged in a pool, flashing back to when his mom played once again by Penelope Cruz, mm-hmm. um, who is, you know, washing clothes and singing alongside some other women by the creek. Then, you know, via a captivating animated sequence, Salvador tells us about his many ailments, his migraines, his depression, his twisted vertebrae, and all the various methods and medications that he uses to control them. Um, this is the pain, presumably, and in the same breath, he discusses how his filmmaking career has taken him all over the world and taught him all about the places and countries and towns that he could only once dream about. You know, those are the glories uh, and those are the pains. Um, the question in his mind is how to keep both extremes in line as he grows older because right now, that's all he's got. It, it seems like the pain has, has, uh, has surpassed the glory. Um, and pain and glory weaves in and out of the past through varied forms of expression. There are paintings, there are plays, there are monologues, there are movies, there are snatches of literature. Um, but fundamentally, the, the picture has like two tracks. You know, yeah. One of them is in the present. Salvador is trying to make amends with an actor uh, whom he once feuded with. Uh, and I, I think some, su- some have suggested that this references a long period when uh, Almodovar and Banderas themselves didn't work together, but I think 
Uh, it's about something else. It couldn't have been Banderas, but you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he promptly gets hooked on heroin, a drug that he's always scoffed at. Um, mixing that with his painkillers and generals helpings of alcohol, I think Salvador drifts further and further into his memories, particularly the period when his impoverished family move into this very beautiful small rural town and uh, literally live inside a cave. I'm not joking. They, <laughs> they find an apartment in a cave. Uh, and then the mom hires this local illiterate uh, bricklayer to help fix up their, their cave house uh, in exchange for young Salvador teaching the man to read and write. And of course, the young Salvador in the throes of adolescent sexual awakening becomes fascinated with his with this hunky bricklayer. Mm-hmm. And the grown-up Salvador is a man who is paralyzed creatively and emotionally given all his aches and pains and maybe in danger of being uh, paralyzed physically as well. Um, and yet creation still swirls all, all around him, you know. Um, this is a great uh, film about uh, autobiographical, autobiographical film yeah. without without really being autobiographical. He yeah. he makes a version of himself in a way that I I suppose like, you know, um a lot of people do that like these days, you know, like, you know, for example, Dave is mm. uh, uh, a loose version of of the real person. Yeah. Not really, but but you can see enough of him in there yeah. to make this to make this seem very emotionally honest. Mm. Uh what do you think about Pain and Glory, which uh I think was his latest up to this year's movie? Yes, yes. Twenty yeah. twenty nineteen. Right, twenty nineteen. Yep. I th- I just think it was a very interesting. Like, first of all, Antonio Banderas does a great job here. Uh, mm. But in this particular film, I think for the first one, like our our focus isn't on the women necessarily, right? Um, mm-hmm. For the first time in in yeah these four films, a long time, a yeah. long time. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting to still see like. The, the role that is played in particular, like, I mean, choosing Penelope Cruz to play your mother, right? Um, mm. You know, like, that is, in and of itself, the casting of that, like, is a significant, there's a significance to it because she's, a, you know, muse and all of that in real life and so on and so forth. So we can read what we want out of that in particular. Um, what is yep. very fascinating, I think, is the relationship between the three kind of main men, right? Though, so, uh, with uh, Salvador and with um, Federico and Alberto, like mm. the the way that their conversations unfold with so much history behind them that at any given point in time we may or may not be privy to already or have not been revealed to us already is extremely potent. But at the same mm-hmm. time, these are very restrained characters Right, and I think that's also indicative of like the overall feeling of the film. Right, there are a lot of moments in which, you know, rage or regret or an abundance of feeling, uh, attempts to take over or might feel like it may overwhelm, uh, but it yeah. never, it always gets to that point, but never past it, you know. Mm. Uh, and I feel like the most telling of that is actually. Um, Alberto's kind of like uh, a reading or, or performance of addiction. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And how he plays that out is very much the entire vibe of the entire film. Uh, mm-hmm. It is very intentional and controlled and restrained storytelling um, that is feels at once both masterful and threatening. Mm. Do you get what I mean? Like it, it yep, feels yep. as though it's not that we're not being told the full story, 
right? Um, but it feels more like we're not telling you the full story because you might not be able to handle it. Um, it is is the kind of feeling that I get from that, you know. Uh, mm. and like I think it takes a great deal of skill and just like mastery, both you know, on the the acting side of things and on the directing side of things, or even the cinematography to land all of that consistently time and time again across every scene, right? How far do you push for that? For people to get that feeling or be uncomfortable or be curious, right? But never go past that line, um, you know, and just kind of push it as far to the limit as it goes. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, this was the most recent one. I actually just watched this a couple of days ago. Um, mm. So it's still kind of fresh in my mind and a lot of my... Um, a lot of my thinking and unpacking after watching the film has been about like why did he choose to make it that way like what is the particular statement he's making at this point in his career given the Mm -hmm. autobiographical nature slash format of this film um Mm -hmm. you know is it like does he feel and of course this is me just completely reading into into his reasons for making this film right um, sure. But like, does he feel that he has lacked restraint and therefore wants to showcase that, or does he feel mm-hmm. he has been too restrained, which is puzzling, maybe mm-hmm. given his body of work, uh, and he would like at this point in time to like flourish out of that, you know? Yeah. Uh, it is. It, it's an interesting choice for someone who has not really shown restraint in many of his other films. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it is no less potent and no less powerful and no less unnerving in its mm-hmm. own kind of special way, right? Like, the restraint feels more disturbing because, you know, it's a Amoda film. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it betrays that there is more to it than is being revealed or that the audience can see. Yes, yeah. Um, a, a key to, like, what makes the film, obviously, is Antonio Banderas, oh, like, yeah. who carries, you know, nearly every minute of the film. And it's probably the most understated or world-weary that we've ever seen. You know, Banderas is usually seen as this, like, you know, Latino heartthrob action star um, hero, you know, and here he is tired (laughs) and in pain uh, all the time. You know, he feels so, so worn down and it's the understated performance. Also his ability to play the many roles that Salvador finds himself in. Sometimes he is a repentant friend, Mm -hmm. you know, one minute and sometimes he is the domineering director the next. And, you know, in a series of scenes with his own ailing mother, we see him go from parent to child and then back to parent again. Yeah. Uh, it's a performance of great range and it also feels unified and very controlled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there is a line that Salvador tells his actor pal at one point that I think breaks down our Modova's films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's the line. It, it um, Let me quote it. It is, uh, better not to be an actor who's always crying, but one, but one who's always on the verge of tears. Mm. Um, melodrama has always been in the director's bones, as we said, yeah. but he's always resisted the indulgence that comes with it. We rarely find wild, uncontrolled bursts of emotion in any amount of our film. Instead, what we get is the spectacle of people struggling to hold things back, you know. Um, and and the, the feelings are instead displaced onto the decor or the mise-en-scene or the music and things like that, but never in the people themselves, you know. Yeah. So that kind of like very succinctly breaks down his uh, his ethos, I guess, you know, in, in that one line that uh, the that his fake director is telling his the <laughs> fake friend, the, the fake actor. You know, it's it's his real life ethos. You know, um, pain and glory is meta, I, but I think it never goes 
full adaptation, I guess. Uh, yeah. The, the movie... <laughs> The movie hovers in the intrigue of Salvador's, you know, psychological duress and traces it back to his childhood with this, you know, wonderful uh, flashbacks interspersed throughout the plot. Yeah. You know? um, it, it's here that we really get to learn uh, what Salvador is and who he is, how he was shaped by his mother, his, his uh, village in Valencia in the 1960s, his frugal father and things like that, yeah. um, his, uh, his sexual awakening. Um, it's a curious package of pathos and naval gazing that could easily devolve into, again, self-indulgence mm-hmm. if Almodovar didn't keep the style and the narrative humming. Yeah. Um, um, at stake here is Salvador wrestling with his past and whether he can confront it in a new work uh, is the question. You know, is, that's the question. Can he confront his past in his, in his work? Yes. Or whether he has the, the capacity to produce new work at all. You know? yeah. um, without filming, my life is meaningless, he said. You know? And the suspense of the movie stems from whether... He gives into that dark void, and it's really driven by Banderas's like very lovely nuanced turn and the Slobin ex- exposition. Mm. It's it's impossible not to feel the turmoil bo- on both sides of the camera, like what Salvador the director is feeling yeah. and what Almodovar the real director is feeling. Uh yeah, um, that's why I I really love this. You know, like it it kind of dispenses with his usual big playful scenes uh-huh. and and settles into a more pensive mood as it winds down. It's a more one of the most unique yeah. Almodovar's I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, any final thoughts on uh, Pain and Glory? Oh man, I, I just want to talk about like my favourite line from here and how Banderas, <clears throat> it's as uh, Federico is is leaving and he asks whether he wants to stay. And mm. uh, what's the line again? Um, uh, I would love for you to, I'm paraphrasing, but let's close our story yeah. as God intended, right? Um, yeah, such a yeah. powerful line, such an interesting insight, I think, into um, Salvador's kind of growth as a character. Because at that point in time in the movie, like you've seen a fair number of the flashbacks already, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and he's kind of like this position, like it has happened as it has happened. And yeah. perhaps you are hoping that he takes that into this new project that he has started. Um, mm. such a like it's, there's so much encapsulated in that one line you know and like the emotional portrayal of that in those few seconds on Antonio Banderas' face is just it, it just it's kind of crazy how how good that is um, absolutely yeah I, I love this movie it is it is definitely I think uh, I mean I've only watched four so far so I'm definitely going to try and dive into the rest of his uh, filmography uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, pain, pain and glory is special for sure. Yeah. Um. In 2019, when I made like you know top films of the year, etc., etc., yep. right? 2019 specifically was the year for me. Um. Of the three Ps, <laughs> which which was my top three, Parasite, yep. Portrait of Lady on Fire, and, and Pain glory. and Glory were like my were my top three for for that year. Um. And it's very easy to see to see why you know all three films are very different, oh, but, yeah. but quite special. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, that was our deep, di- deep dive into four of the films from uh, Almodovar's very lengthy 40-year filmography. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot more that you can watch if you want to talk about. Uh, if you're looking for new stuff, uh, just last year in 2021, uh, which is you know just a few weeks ago, yep. um, Almodovar released a short film, his first ever English-language short film uh, called The Human Voice, starring Tilda Swinton. Uh, and that has inspired him to make an English language feature film, uh, also starring Tilda Swinton, uh, coming in the next couple of years, which she's filming right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to see Almodovar moving out of Spain 
and moving out of the Spanish language. I think it's it could be fascinating. Uh, his latest film, though, it will be released in Singapore, if you live in Singapore, uh, on the 18th of February. So oh. you can check it out. His latest film is called um, Parallel Mavis. Uh, and it is a familiar variation on themes, I'm assuming, um, given the title. Uh, it also stars Penelope Cruz, mm-hmm. once again. Um, it is a Modova doing a Modova things, so uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, but he is saying that Parallel Mavis might be his last film in Spain for quite some time. He wants to explore things outside his homeland while he's still alive. You know, he's in his later years, so he wants to do like different things. Yeah. Uh, and he wants to do an English language film next, and sure, yeah, like do one of the Swinton, you know, uh, or, or a non Penelope Cruz once in a while. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Oh, but Penelope Cruz can be English too. What am I talking about? Yeah, he can. She she can absolutely be sure. in one piece English yeah. language films. Yeah, yeah. So can Antonio Banderas. Or a whole slew of any of the actors or actresses he's worked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, before we cap off this episode, you know, um, I wanted to introduce like a small segment. Uh, what's making you happy in January? What have you been watching, yeah. reading, or listening to that you would like to shout out and maybe you know recommend to our listeners? Okay. Um. Yeah, I'll go first. I have been, uh, well, my meal time kind of binge at, at the moment, moment is been Shit's Creek that just gone onto Netflix. A lot of the nice. time, like my, un- I guess it's the unwinding kind of thing, right? Netflix is still kind of the easiest thing. It's on my TV outside. I can just pull it up and watch whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, Shit's Creek, I'm, I think like I'm three or four seasons in, right? Never really hopped yep. onto that bandwagon when it became popular. In, in Yeah. It, at season three, more or less. Uh, but yeah, I've, I'm kind of catching up on that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished the new Jojo Bizarre's Adventure Stone Ocean. Mm. Just came uh, out, yeah. Just well, uh, a while ago, right? But like, I'm I'm fully caught up with that now. Uh, oh, I, I I saw it just pop out on Netflix. Yeah, so maybe it, it just came out on Netflix. Uh, but it oh, was a delayed but... release on Netflix because. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. So I watched the couple when it came out. I think I did mention it in one of our anime corners, uh, the last mm-hmm. anime corner that I did. Uh, but I fully finished all of that. So like, it's interesting. It's super interesting for a, a, a JoJo franchise to have a female lead. Um, mm. It is like, it has all the nonsense of everything else that you love and all hate about a JoJo um, um series yeah. yeah um but at the same time like it's it's fascinating like uh jolene is actually might be one of my favorite so far protagonists so far um mm-hmm. it, it's a very fascinating look at how to kind of shake things up uh in what has always felt like an extremely male dominated testosterone filled kind of you know franchise um mm. and it does mix it up a great deal there's also a lot of like uh, absurdist orange is the new black kind of vibes which I've enjoyed tremendously gotcha uh, as well um, so yeah other than that like things I've been kind of keeping up with uh, within the anime world recently uh, religiously following where Demon Slayer is going uh, mm-hmm. very, really enjoying this entertainment district I think it raises a lot of very dark themes and questions um, mm. that I don't think we've seen so far you know, and I know there's a lot of like hullabaloo about like you know the renaming of it and whether or not like this arc necessarily is something that kids should be watching. Look, mm. right? If your kids aren't teens yet, they shouldn't be watching most anime in general. I'm just gonna put it out there, right? Sure. Uh, and Demon Slayer has never been something that is meant for kids. Um, you know, mm. but like 
the red light district and prostitution has the oldest profession in the world, right? At some point in time, mm-hmm. there's something your kids are going to have to confront. If you're already yeah. letting them watch Demon Slayer for two seasons, you know, mm. uh, I think you're a bit too far gone for that. Not that, not, yeah. not that I have any right to tell you how to parent your kids, but just my two cents. Yeah, um, bro, they're they're like worst things out oh, there. Yeah. Like Attack on Titan is like hundred times more violent. Um, yeah. your kid should not be watching Devil Man Cry Baby. I can agree with yeah, that. Absolutely, you know, but I think Demon Slayer is okay. Yeah, yeah, Demon Slayer is is I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's middle of the road. Like, I'm not saying it's kid friendly, right? But it's middle yep. of the road. Um, yeah, and you know, again, like I don't understand what the hoo ha was about. Uh, mm-hmm. for this particular. Um, arc right but i'm really really enjoying yeah. it uh, i think like demon slayer continues to have a very sensible if somewhat mundane uh power leveling structure mm-hmm. that i enjoy mm-hmm. that is uncommon for for shonen shonen arcs um uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh in addition to that komi can't communicate which just ended uh i think last week um mm. continually kept up with that and uh, Blue Period, which also just ended, uh, I think that also wrapped up kind of very nicely as well. Um, nice. As for like non-fiction stuff, I think uh, I've been watching this and maybe we'll talk about it in our f- our kind of like food episode of Behold or whatever it is. Mm. Is, um, oh man, what is it called? Uh, one second. It's this, sure. it's, it's called Flavorful Origins. Uh, and it's this kind of like documentary uh, style thing about food and ingredients from like very specific uh, regions in China. Like mm-hmm. the cinematography and all that is chef's table level, you know, and they've got mm. a great kind of, but it is fascinating to just kind of learn about these things. Like at the moment, that's kind of like my non-fiction kind of binging thing. Like every episode nice. is a particular ingredient from a, uh, every season is from a particular region and every episode is a particular uh, ingredient and it spans from like anywhere from 12 minutes to like 20 minutes for, for a go. So like it's a very easy watch, like super informative mm. and will make you hungry. I guarantee that. Nice. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I think it's been not too packed in terms of like new stuff at the beginning of the month. Uh, okay. And I'll say if like kind of the... the the upcoming anime stuff um, for genre for yeah. yeah for anime corner I have caught two episodes of the new cheer mm-hmm. wow it feels like a different show man um, yes yeah yeah cheer season two is in many ways superior to cheer season yes. one because it is <laughs> dealing with the consequences of cheer season one uh, not just in terms of Jerry Harris's arrest which is front and center yeah uh, definitely because they had to address that straight away but you know in terms of how they deal with the popularity, you know, like how does it affect their work in the cheerleading squad when they're doing like a million interviews a day, they're on award shows and things like that. How does that distract them? And, you know, post the popularity, you haven't even gotten into how the, the NCA Daytona championships mm-hmm. were cancelled um, seven days out because of COVID. Um, the 2020 season, which th- at least the way that um, Cheer filmed it, it looked like that was going to be the best season ever. The, yeah. Everybody was everybody was on top form. Ladarius, Lexi, Morgan, Gabby were back and all of that, you know. Um, and, and they were doing like a bunch of like zero full outs. Uh, so they were like primed to win. Yeah. But then that got cancelled. And then after the 2020 season, uh, Lexi is gone. Ladarius is gone. Morgan is graduated, you know, things like that. So they lost a lot of their world-class players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most interesting aspect of Chase season two uh, also is 50% of the show now is dedicated to their rivals, 
uh, Trinity Valley College. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, it, it comes as an interesting point, I think, around after after they handled the Jerry stuff in episode mm-hmm. five, which, you know, they had access to Jerry up to the point of his arrest, which makes it a very intimate look at what happened yeah. and how the team fell apart over it, you know, specifically with how Monica handled it, how Ladera's handled it. Um, I think, uh, yeah, the, uh, Navarro just got fucked up by that. And because of that, the 2021 season was in shambles uh, before it began. Uh, on, on the flip side, and, you know, they lost Lexi, they lost Morgan, who graduated and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, on TVCC, the new crop of freshmen that they got in 2021, which, this will, you'll see this in the second half of the season. Okay. It feels like, what's that basketball anime, you know, like with that, incre- with that incredible class? Uh, Kuroko. Uh, Kuroko's basketball? Yeah. Yeah, like like TVCC <laughs> in in one fell swoop, they got like a Kuroku, uh, Kurosuko like dream team yeah. of freshmen who who were like who were like the best in the world or the best in the country at that point yeah. in terms of high school going to college, and none of them wanted to go to Navarro because they wanted to avoid the cheer drama, the, the cheer the Netflix show drama yeah. and all the stuff that came out of the Jerry Harris stuff. So not only did they lose a bunch of world class like guys and girls their rivals gained a bunch of world-class guys and girls. So it made it a very... It made Navarro an underdog again. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and I couldn't see it. I, I didn't ever see that happening. <laughs> and and you, you kind of begrudgingly root for TVCC because they're hungry, they're focused, they've not been distracted. Uh, they're a bit pissed off that they're number two for like the last 20 years. Yeah. You know, so... Cheers season two is a great watch, man. Yeah. It's, it's superior to season one in many ways. Oh, yeah. man. Okay, yeah, I'm definitely going to be digging into that. Um, the two episodes that I've seen so far already have been like, yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. Um, there's this like little yeah. strange one that I just picked up recently. It's called What Did You Eat Yesterday? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically, uh, it's like this uh, a show about these two, these two Japanese um, uh, gay, gay men. Um, mm-hmm. And like, the one of them who's a lawyer, like he prepares like home cooked meals, uh, for his partner who's a hairstylist, and they just kind of like navigate, you know, middle age as a middle aged gay couple in Tokyo. Like it's very cute, mm. it's very sweet. Uh, it is actually fairly funny as well. Uh, I had a friend put me onto that, and I've been watching it here and there. Um, nice. Yeah, I think that's been about it. I've been toying with the idea of rewatching Be- Breaking Bad from the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I might only do that after we're done with the our Mad Men thing, uh, mm-hmm. most likely. What, awesome. Okay. What about you? Um, West Side Story is definitely uh, one of my highlights oh, in January. Yeah. Um, Steven Seawolf's remake of a classic iconic musical is at both beat for beat the same, yet at the same <laughs> time feels ex- incredibly different. Yep. Uh, one of the best live action musicals I've seen in a long time, particularly with a lot of fresh new voices and incredible new cinematography that adds a physicality and a heft yeah. to the moves and the movements of the dancing that was uh you know not present in the original mm-hmm, Western story mm-hmm. in the 60s and in the Broadway play. Um Petite Maman and Tragedy of Macbeth are two movies I really love from this month, which I will talk about in genre. Yeah. Um people who are going to say that Macbeth is not genre, fuck off. They are like witches and ghosts. Yeah. Um uh, Licorice Pizza is probably the best film that comes out this year. I've already seen it, but I still watch it uh, in a couple of days. Yeah, um, yeah one of Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson's best. I think it far supersedes anything else oh, that I've seen in the oh, cinema okay. uh, this month. Um, Euphoria is back for season two. Yes, um, I am, I'm holding off, I think. Yeah. I'm going to try and binge it at one go. We'll see how it goes. 
yeah, Euphoria doing the most. Uh, doing the most in a very Euphoria style. Mm-hmm. It's very in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, Euphoria might, for me, have tipped over into the style over substance element, oh. particularly with the with the first two episodes. Okay. But the style is so eye catching yeah. and so insanely technical. You know, the technical wizardry of the camera work and all that. That I kind of don't mind. Okay. You know? Um. But we'll see, lah. Maybe it's just you know to to catch your attention again before they delve into the meat of it. Yeah. Um, Station Eleven, I'll be talking about in Drone Equality. Um, might be the perfect, the first perfect show that I give a ten out of ten score since Watchmen, yeah. since for two years. Um, yeah, I think that might be. Oh, the book of Boba Fett has been really good. Oh, I've yeah. been enjoying that quite a yeah. bit as well. Uh, last but not least, I want to shout out a a show called All Um. All Creatures Great and Small. Mm-hmm. It is a bucolic little show uh, set in England in the 1930s. It follows vets who take care of farm animals and pets. And that is it. It is a very comforting show <laughs> about people looking after animals and looking after the, the owners and the people who love those animals. Um, if you want a kind of Ted Lasso meets Downton Abbey vibes, but with a lot of Cute animals who are in, uh, almost in a Grey's Anatomy situation almost every week, where vets have to you know like fix them. Yeah, yeah I I really enjoy all creatures great and small. They uh obviously there are very little stakes. Uh-huh. Um, you know the highest stakes that you can get is like is this cow going to die? That's it. <laughs> okay. But I find it a very comforting watch in a very like high pressure depressing real world. It's it's just a comforting watch to watch. Yeah. Like ni- nice people in the country being nice to each other and being nice to animals. It's just nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's it. Those, those are our recommendations for this month. I will be back for Drone Equality in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and of course, in the next month, we'll do the very opposite of what we did last year and we'll recommend a bunch of anti Valentine movies oh, yeah. uh, for, <laughs> for, the, yeah, for February. Uh, till then, uh, Happy New Year, guys. This is Hit Zero. Hi, Marcel. Goodbye.